beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Now, Christmas is a highlight in the church year. It's a time of rejoicing for every Christian. For at Christmas, we celebrate God's gift of his dearly loved Son. Jesus came into this world to bring light to man. He came to save us from our sins. Christ came to give hope in a life in which we're often confronted with sorrow and suffering. He came to give peace to all those who believe in him. Let's consider what Christ's birth meant to the people of his day. For many centuries, God had not spoken to his people. Israel had not received any prophets from the Lord since shortly after its return from exile. Its priesthood was corrupt. God's people were like sheep without a shepherd. God's people also no longer had a king seated on David's throne. Instead, they were under the dominion of the Romans. They lived in a time of great spiritual darkness. Today, the world is not in much better shape than it was in the time that the Lord Jesus was born. It's true that the gospel message has gone out to peoples far and wide. But many in our culture have forgotten the real meaning of Christmas. They may celebrate a holiday with, with a special dinner and presents and fun. But many live in darkness. They live without comfort and without hope. Many people face much brokenness, much heartache in their lives. So this morning, let us consider God's grace in sending his son into this world. Let us praise God for his mighty work of sending a savior to save us from our sins and from the brokenness caused by sin. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. God shows forth his mighty power in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. We'll see how God used Augustus' decree to suit his divine purpose and how God used Jesus' humble birth to serve a glorious end. Children, do you know how lots of stories begin? Often the first words are, once upon a time. These words teach us that the story that follows is not real. What you're reading is just a fairy tale. The things that are said in the story never actually happened. Well, this morning, we read together the Christmas story. We read about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This story began with the words, in those days. Our text is describing real events that actually happened. It refers to the days after John the Baptist was born. Our text is not a fairy tale. It is history. It describes God's wonderful work of sending his son into this world. Luke begins his account of Christ's birth with a report on the activities of the Roman emperor. He reports that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Every family had to have their names written down in a book. The purpose of this registration of names was to help the Roman governors to collect the appropriate amount of tax from the people living in their jurisdiction. Augustus needed money to run his massive empire, to pay for his building projects. Therefore, everyone in the Roman Empire had to go and have their names registered for taxation purposes. We read in verse 3 that all went to be registered, each to his own town. There was a good reason for sending people back to their own cities, especially in Israel. We should not forget that God had given the Israelites each their own inheritance. The land was divided by tribes and families. If you wanted to conduct an orderly census, the way to do it was to send everyone back to his own village or town. That way you could determine their real net worth, including the value of their family inheritance. Luke tells us that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of Bethlehem. Our text identifies Bethlehem as the city of David. Specifically mentions that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Joseph belonged to the royal family. He was in the direct line of the kings of Judah. Officially, Joseph was an heir to the throne of David. Yet here we see him obeying the orders of a foreign ruler. According to the edict of the emperor, he went to be registered in his hometown, Bethlehem. Our text mentions that Mary went with Joseph. It's not clear whether her presence was required in Bethlehem. Yet for her to remain in Nazareth was out of the question. Let's not forget that Mary's son was conceived out of wedlock. She would in all likelihood have been exposed to slander. John 8 verse 41 gives reference to that. And so Joseph wanted to spare her this. He also wanted to be with her when her child was born. Since Joseph was forced to register his name in Bethlehem, Mary went with him. Luke goes on to tell us how this decree affected Joseph and Mary. They had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a journey of about 140 kilometers. It was mostly an uphill journey. They had to travel when Mary was almost due to have a baby. Yet Augustus did not care about the hardships his decree caused people. The fact that their lives were interrupted and uprooted did not worry him. He simply gave the command, and woe to anyone who disobeyed. You can imagine that the Jews were very unhappy with Caesar Augustus's decree. The Jews consider themselves to be a free nation under God. But now they had to obey the edict of a Roman emperor. What made it even worse was that this decree was associated with taxation. The Jews hated paying tax to the Roman authorities. Tax collectors were despised. Later in Jesus' ministry, we see that Israel's leaders even asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. What's striking in our text is that Joseph the heir to the throne of David, was completely subject to the Roman emperor. In our text, there is no mention 
of the hand of God. It appears that Joseph and Mary are just victims of circumstance. The land of Judah was under the dominion of the Romans. Under the Maccabees, God's people had tried to remove the yoke of the Roman rulers, but they had not succeeded. So when the emperor had decreed it, Joseph had to go and be enrolled in the census. From the outside, it appears that Joseph and Mary were just pawns in the hand of the mighty Caesar Augustus. But in actual fact, we know behind the scenes, the Lord God was directing the affairs of men in order to accomplish his purposes. The Lord God was in full control of the time of Christ's birth. From the words, in those days, we could get the impression that the events of our text just happened. But the Bible makes it clear that this was not so. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. From this we see the coming of Jesus Christ into this world took place at the exact time ordained by God. God had used both the Greeks and the Romans to prepare the world for the coming of his Son. The Greeks had left their mark on the whole then-known world. They had imported their culture to all the nations and tribes they conquered. What's especially noteworthy is that they made Greek the common language of the then-known world, much like English is today. The Romans had put in a system of government. They'd built many roads and opened the trade routes. The time of Caesar Augustus is known as a time of peace and of prosperity. And so God prepared the world for the spread of the gospel message. Luke shows us how God orchestrated the birth of Christ in such a way that the words of the prophets might be fulfilled. God had promised that he would set a son of David on his throne forever, 2 Samuel 7. Micah foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Luke shows how the Lord uses the decree of an earthly magistrate to accomplish his purposes. He uses the decree of Caesar Augustus to cause his dearly beloved son to be born in Bethlehem. Christ did not just happen to be born there. It was God himself who also ordained the place of Christ's birth. Yes, beloved, we see the words of Psalm 2 being fulfilled in our text. There David speaks about how the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord God is sovereign king, and he will accomplish his purposes. In Psalm 2, we hear David speak forth God's mighty claim. He said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The Lord promised to establish his son on the throne, to put all nations under him. 
Thus, the kings and rulers of this world are warned to be wise, to serve the Lord with fear. Otherwise, they would come under his judgment. So Joseph and Mary were not pawns in Emperor Augustus's hands. Ultimately, it's not his decree that caused them to travel to Bethlehem. Instead, Caesar Augustus is a pawn in the hands of Almighty God. It was God's decree that caused his son to be born in Bethlehem without even knowing it. The mightiest man on the earth at that time was serving the purpose of Almighty God. It's not Caesar Augustus that determined when and where people went, but God did. God used Augustus's decree to suit his divine purpose. God's purpose was to provide salvation for sinners. Christ came to bring light to man. It's with happy hearts we may remember the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ came to redeem us from our sins, to deliver us from the power of the evil one. He came to give us hope in a life in which we're often confronted with suffering and sorrow. He came to restore us in our relationship with God. And so at Christmas time, we rejoice. For we celebrate the mighty works of God, who sent his Son for our salvation. This brings us to our second point, and it will see how God used Jesus' humble birth to serve a glorious end. Luke has shown us the heavenly purpose behind Christ's birth in Bethlehem. Yet he does not hide the fact that Jesus was born in lowly circumstances. Luke shows us that Christ's birth involved a great humiliation. Jesus was God's son. The manner of his coming into the world did not fit his royal position as Lord and King. In our text, Luke says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. A number of things about our text that are noteworthy. The first relates to those swaddling cloths in which Jesus was wrapped. The verb to swaddle simply means to bind or to wrap. It was a custom in those days that after a baby was born, it was wrapped in cloths. It was the way babies were clothed in order to keep them warm. In this regard, Christ's birth was just like that of other children born in those days. The second thing is that our text indicates that Mary was the one who wrapped her son and laid him in a manger. Our text does not speak about other women coming to help her, either with the birth or with the postnatal care of her son. You should remember, Mary was not at home when her son was born. She was away from family and friends. She had to give birth in some kind of stall where animals normally ate. In this, we see that our Savior's birth was different from that of many born in his day. Jesus was born in difficult circumstances. Luke tells us that Mary laid the baby Jesus in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When speaking about the inn, we should not think about a fancy motel like we have them today. 
The inn in Bethlehem was probably a place with an open fire and a hearth. It was a gathering place, possibly at the outskirts of town where the traveling caravans and merchants stayed for the night. At the time of the census, it's likely that this area would have been filled with many people. Such a public place with people milling around would not be a good setting in which to give birth to a child. It's likely that the Lord Jesus was born in a cave. On the outskirts of Bethlehem against the cliff walls, there were many caves. The shepherds of Ephrata used them as sheepfolds in the cold part of the year. In these caves, they dug mangers out of the cliff walls in order to feed their sheep. When the angel told the shepherds that they would find the baby Jesus lying in a manger, they knew where to look. They went to the place where they normally fed their sheep. The angel said that finding a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger would be a sign to them that they had found the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, normally you don't find babies lying in a manger. Mangers are where you put food for animals. And so the Lord Jesus was born in less than ideal circumstances. His birth took place in great poverty. Because there was no room for them at the inn, Jesus Christ, the great King, the promised Messiah, was born in a barn and laid in an animal feeding trough. Beloved, please consider who Jesus was and where he lived prior to his coming in human flesh. Before his birth in Bethlehem, our Savior was Lord and King in heaven above. He held a position of great honor and glory. He dwelt in heavenly splendor. He received the praise and the worship of the angels. They did his will both in heaven and on earth. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, was God before he took on human flesh. He held a royal position of glory and majesty. Yet Jesus gave up all his heavenly privileges in order to come into this world. The Apostle Paul emphasizes the humiliation Christ underwent in his birth. In Philippians 2, he tells us that Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Although he was God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Our Lord did not cling to the privileges that were his. He didn't hold on to his position as mighty king of heaven and earth. Freely, Jesus gave up his majesty, his glory, his splendor for a life of pain and of suffering on this earth. Paul emphasizes that Christ became a servant. He became a slave who was willing to do the will of his heavenly father, no matter what it would cost him. This was apparent already in the lowly circumstances of his birth, and it continued through all his life on earth. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 8, Although he was a son, he learned obedience 
through what he suffered. In Philippians 2, Paul explains that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see that Christ gave up the joy and glory he experienced in heaven to come and save us from our sins. Beloved, when we consider the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see how God used his humble birth to serve a glorious end. Jesus was born in poverty and squalor we find hard to imagine. But he came to bring about our redemption. Paul summarizes the message of our text in a beautiful way with the words he wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Yes, beloved, we are rich indeed. Christmas time, we remember how Christ came as a great light in this dark world. He came to save us from our sins and to restore us in a relationship with our Father in heaven. He came to provide healing to those crushed in spirit, to set free those who were oppressed. Christ's coming gives us joy. It gives us peace. It gives us hope. Joy that we're not our own, but belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has bought us at a price. Peace that we are secure in the care of our Heavenly Father. Hope that by the Holy Spirit, God will lead us forward to the final day when we may share everlasting life with Him. Does the gospel message still touch your hearts, beloved? Are you thankful for the supreme gift of his son, Jesus Christ? Are you humbled by the great sacrifices that the King Jesus Christ was willing to make on your behalf? Is that saying that familiarity breeds contempt? Because we've heard the Christian because we've heard the Christmas message so often, it can happen that we fail to really appreciate what Christ's birth means for us. In this Christmas season, let's celebrate God's grace in sending His Son to save us from our sins. Let's praise God for His mighty works of salvation. Amen.